Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on two topics, learning lessons from the Cold War to contain Russian aggression, and will curbing inflation require a recession? Our first speaker will be Hal Brands, who is the Henry Kissinger Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins. He is also the author of the new book entitled The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. I want to speak to Hal about these topics. How will the Ukraine war play out? How will it impact the great power rivalries going forward? And what does this mean for the relationship between the U.S., Russia, and China? Can we split Russia and China? And what are the consequences of not doing so? Our second speaker will be Desmond Lachman, who works at AEI. Des has been a very good friend of mine for the past 25 years, and we worked together when Des was the chief emerging markets economist at Solomon Brothers. I want to learn from Des if the rising inflation is transitory, and why is inflation rising so rapidly? If the economy is overheating, why are we still trying to increase fiscal stimulus? And why hasn't the Fed raised rates? And why are they so far behind the curve? And most importantly, if interest rates do rise, what does this mean for stock and real estate prices? Des, how bad is it going to get out there? You can find transcripts for this program and for all of our previous episodes on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. And you can listen on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. All right, let's begin with our first speaker, Hal Brands. Thanks for having me, Larry. My recent book is called The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry. When we think about the U.S. competition with China or with Russia today, these are not the same things as the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. Xi's China is not uh, Stalin's Soviet Union or even Mao's China. Putin's Russia is not Stalin's Soviet Union either. Now we worry about a beleaguered international order that's coming under strain. Back in the late 1940s, there was no international order, and that was part of the problem. The geography is different. The levels of economic interconnectedness are different. When I talk about lessons of the Cold War, I'm not arguing that everything is the same and we can just simply rerun the Cold War playbook in vastly dissimilar circumstances today. We can still learn a lot by looking back on the Cold War for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that the Cold War itself wasn't that exceptional. It was just one manifestation of a much longer-running competition between great powers to shape the international system. We have instances of this going back to the ancient world. We can see it in the early modern era. We can see it in the 20th century. The U.S.-China and U.S.-Russia relationships today are just part of this larger phenomenon as well. There's really one time in our history that we've geared up for extended decades-long competition with an authoritarian great power, and that is the Cold War. The United States, in order to succeed in the Cold War, had to rally big, unwieldy coalitions of allies. It had to blend competition with negotiation and cooperation. Current events are making the history of the Cold War look more relevant We've had a period of heightened tensions in U.S.-China relations over the past 18 months. It's become increasingly common to refer to the U.S.-China relationship as a new Cold War. There's a non-trivial danger of hot war in flashpoints like the Taiwan Strait. And so the sort of skills and competencies that were necessary to get through the old Cold War with the Soviet Union successfully are unfortunately going to be necessary with China today. 
We're seeing the same thing when we look at U.S. relations with Russia. Russia remains the more aggressive of the two great power rivals that the United States confronts, and it's a country that we ignore at our peril. Autocratic great powers are still quite willing to use force to get their way in international affairs. Those conflicts present real risks of spillover and escalation. And so the crisis in Ukraine has intensified, protracted competition for influence with Putin's Russia in Eastern Europe and potentially beyond. We've had the luxury of 30 years of post-Cold War peace. That period's over now. We're heading into a period of much higher dangers, much higher tensions. And we really do need to learn from the past if we're going to navigate the future and its challenges successfully. Hal, how do you compare the beginning of the Cold War with today? One of the really striking parallels is that during the early Cold War, the United States is often pushed along faster by its allies. NATO itself was a European initiative. Creating a transatlantic alliance was about the last thing that Harry Truman had in mind. We only did it because that was the only way of reassuring the Europeans. We often find ourselves surprised by how fast our own allies want to go in periods of crisis. And we've certainly seen this in the Ukraine crisis. I mean, we've experienced about 10 years of history in 10 days or so. We've seen pledges to dramatically increase German defense spending, much more assertive foreign policies from countries in the European Union. Crises catalyze big departures in American foreign policy. The threat that a communist insurgency posed to Greece and that Soviet pressure posed to Turkey led Harry Truman to go before Congress in March 1947 and give his famous two ways of life speech where he sort of outlined the ideological rationale for the Cold War. It was the Korean War that led to the approval of NSC 68 and much higher defense spending along with a global network of alliances. America's approach to competitions evolve in fits and starts, and those are often prompted by unexpected crises like the ones we have today. What do you think of John Mearsheimer's argument that it was a mistake to push our NATO alliance to Russia's borders because it scared Putin and forced his hand? His argument was NATO expansion antagonized the Russians and have caused them to lash out violently in Georgia and Ukraine. But I don't find that argument particularly persuasive. Russia has long sought to create a sphere of influence in its near abroad. It didn't need NATO expansion to want to exert that influence as it started to recover from the extreme weakness of the 1990s. Yale professor John Lewis Gaddis wrote the definitive history of Cold War strategy in his book, Strategies of Containment. Gaddis describes two different methods to undermine Soviet aggression, the symmetric and the asymmetric approach. Symmetric implies that if the Russians attack the Ukraine, then we defend it. The asymmetric approach would be to challenge the Russians in a different way, economic sanctions, attack Russia somewhere else. How could the U.S. use asymmetry against Russia in the Ukraine? I think asymmetric response is almost always desirable in principle. The idea of playing to your strengths, choosing areas of the competition where you can really thrive, not simply reacting to your opponent's every thrust, that's really compelling. It has a strong logic, as John points out in that book, which is the Bible of strategic studies from a historian's perspective, there were a number of U.S. initiatives during the Cold War that employed that asymmetric logic to very good effect, right? The Marshall Plan was a great example of asymmetric containment. We're going to use money, technology, expertise to revive the economies of Western Europe in a way that the Soviets cannot hope to match in Eastern Europe. 
the military strategies that the Reagan administration pursued in the 1980s is an example of asymmetric strategies. Make investments in missile defense or really accurate precision-guided munitions that the Soviets can't match. I don't know whether the economic sanctions are going to work in terms of pushing Russia out of Ukraine. That's a big ask. But they have certainly shown that the United States and its allies can do an incredible amount of damage to a relatively significant economy in a short amount of time. I mean, this is the most comprehensive sanctions package ever put in place on a great power. Russia has been almost totally disconnected from the world in the past 10 days, and the speed and severity of it has just been striking. And I think it's a testament to the strength of U.S. economic and financial power, especially when you combine us with our allies. And I'm sure the Chinese are taking note of this right now. The problem, though, with asymmetric strategies is that they require leaving things undefended. If an asymmetric strategy doesn't succeed in getting the Russians out of Ukraine, then you still got to deal with that problem. During the Cold War, asymmetric strategies didn't deal with the North Korean invasion of South Korea, which is why we ended up in sort of a symmetrical response thing there. And so it's one thing to draw up these strategies kind of in the laboratory and another thing to implement them in the real world. Will there be a peace deal in the Ukraine? I don't think that Putin is going to go to the Ukrainians with a set of demands that they can accept. The minimal Russian demands at this point still involve the destruction of Ukrainian sovereignty, the recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and then the Donbass, probably pretty severe constraints on Ukraine's political autonomy and its foreign policy. I don't see the Ukrainians accepting that sort of settlement right now because they would leave themselves vulnerable to what Putin had in mind the first time, which was the utter destruction of the Ukrainian state and probably the murder of most of their political elites. Putin has put himself in a position where he's really motivated his enemies in Ukraine. They're not going to give up. They're actually doing fairly well militarily. I mean, shockingly well compared to what most expectations were at the outset. I'm actually not entirely sure whose side time is on at this point. Maybe the Russians will get it together with their operations. Maybe they will start fighting in an even worse way where they're just leveling major Ukrainian cities and ramping up the pain to where Zelensky feels that he has to yield. But the Russians are already absorbing pretty high casualties. That's going to take a toll. They're starting to lose significant amounts of equipment. They have 100% of their force they mobilized committed in Ukraine. You can only keep that going for so long before people and equipment starts becoming combat ineffective and the sanctions are going to bite harder with time. And so if you asked me who's going to be in a better position two months from now, it's, it's not entirely clear to me that Russia will be. Should the Ukraine consider hitting the Russians on their home turf to escalate the fight in an asymmetric way? I don't think it helps the Ukrainians militarily. Their problems are in Ukraine, not in Russia. And it hurts them politically, where they've been incredibly shrewd so far at garnering the sympathies of the democratic world, at positioning themselves as sort of the plucky underdog against the Russian Goliath. And if they start taking shots at major cities, that could change relatively quickly. I don't know that Ukraine has the offensive capabilities, and I think the Ukrainians are going to be hard-pressed just to 
defend the major cities, prevent their forces from being encircled in key places. There is a political dynamic here, though, which is that the longer and the costlier the war gets for Russia, the more Putin has to worry about his own political standing at home, if not with the Russian people, then with the group of intelligence and military and economic elites whose support he relies on to remain in power. And one exit scenario from this war is that somebody in Moscow gets tired of Putin's costly war if it drags on and looks unsuccessful and takes matters into their own hands. John Mearsheimer has stated that the real enemy is a great power that can challenge America's international order. And today, that is China and not Russia. So we should try to get Russia on our side to balance the Chinese. I think it's hard to argue right now at a time when Russia has unleashed the largest intrastate war in Europe since World War II that Russia doesn't present a significant threat to the existing international order. There are times when you really don't have an alternative but to take on multiple enemies at once. During the early Cold War, the United States sought to contain communist China and the Soviet Union simultaneously. We should look for opportunities to play on differences between the Russians and the Chinese. If the Russians ever have a change of heart about their alignment, we should certainly welcome greater cooperation with them. But that's a pretty distant prospect at this point. And so I think we just kind of have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that we face two big threats to the international order that we've created, and we've got to deal with them both. Since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has combined hard military power with soft economic or cultural power. And the Europeans have encouraged diplomacy and soft power and objected to the use of hard power to solve disagreements, probably because Europe lacks hard power. And now, with the invasion of the Ukraine, soft power seems useless. Has this realization been the driving force for the European desire for moving toward acquiring hard power? Well, Putin accomplished in a few days what the United States had failed to accomplish in about 10 years, which was to get Germany to take defense seriously. Ukraine is a really big country that has frontage on a bunch of Eastern European states. It's not that far from Germany. And so Putin's invasion has really driven home to European leaders in a very visceral way that they still live in a dangerous neighborhood. And there's no way of making the military math add up if Germany is going to spend 1.4% of GDP on defense. If Putin had rolled through the Ukrainian defenses like a lot of people had expected and had effective control over the most of the country right now, Europe's security situation would be a lot worse because combined with the effective Russian occupation of Belarus, you would have a much enhanced Russian ability to apply pressure against NATO states from the Baltic all the way down to the Black Sea. And that really would be an epic security crisis for Europe that we haven't seen in decades. And so the Ukrainians have really done a lot of good work for the Europeans by bogging the Russians down to a certain extent. But there is a parallel in the sense that the degree of security that countries thought they had turned out to be illusory. And so now they start to realize they've got to invest in their own defenses, even as they also invest in the alliance with the United States. Why didn't Putin find a diplomatic solution instead of attacking the Ukraine? The Biden administration tried to give Putin a decent off-ramp if he wanted one. The 
offer was, if you're really worried about NATO military deployments in Eastern Europe, we're willing to talk about that. And we're willing to address concerns about long-range strike systems. What became clear pretty quickly was that Putin wasn't really interested in that stuff. Putin was interested in the destruction of Ukraine as an independent state. And we shouldn't be surprised because he's been telling us that for a number of years. Putin wanted war in this crisis, or he wanted a complete Ukrainian capitulation, which he probably only could have gotten through war. And I think his behavior throughout this crisis simply reveals that. It seems that the Russian military was caught off guard by the sudden invasion, as if they expected Putin to be only blustering. As amazing as it sounds, I think the answer to that is yes. I think there was a very small circle of people around Putin who understood this was real, and most of the Russian military, perhaps even much of the high command, thought it was diplomatic posturing. And I think that helps explain why a lot of the operations have been so shambolic. Okay, let's say that the Russian military was taken by surprise by their supreme leader and now realize that they're in for the long haul in the Ukraine. Can they regroup to win the battle? That's a really interesting question. Militaries do typically learn in wartime. We're only, what, 12 days into this conflict. They don't appear to be learning very fast, though, and that's a puzzle for me. And I can't tell whether that indicates that their heart isn't in it or there's some other pathology that's preventing them from getting smart fast. In the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union did not fight directly, but instead used proxies and provided arms to the respective proxies. Is that what we will see in the Ukraine? I think you're seeing a similar pattern today already. Putin attacks countries that are not U.S. allies. He doesn't attack countries that are U.S. allies. The U.S. provides uh, arms. It provides intelligence, provides other forms of support to the Ukrainians. It doesn't send its own troops into combat. I mean, so far, there seems to be at least a semi-tacit agreement on the rules of the game, on what each side can do without eliciting a military response. The question is, will it break down if Putin gets more desperate as the conflict goes on? Do you think that the Russians will attack the NATO supply lines to the Ukraine? Right now, he doesn't have the forces to cut down through Western Ukraine and basically sever the land bridge between NATO countries and Ukraine. They might wish to do that. And if you get into a situation where there's a Ukrainian insurgency or something like that that's being supplied from the West, the Russians would certainly try to apply various forms of pressure to do that. During the 1980s, the Soviets occasionally went across the border from Afghanistan into Pakistan to try to clean out some of the sanctuaries that the anti-Soviet guerrillas had created there. And so I think that is a very dangerous situation. You're going to get sort of a contest and coercion between the two sides. If the Ukrainian masses are engaged in street-to-street -street fighting, do you think that Putin will get frustrated and turn to massive civilian attacks? Well, he's already killing lots of civilians, unfortunately. There have been bombardments of civilian areas in major cities, targeting of civilians fleeing the fighting. It could get a lot worse, obviously, in the way that you allude to. Vastly higher numbers of civilian casualties would provoke a really anguished debate in the United States and other societies about whether we should be doing more to defeat Russia in Ukraine. Any use of force in Ukraine obviously brings nuclear dynamics into play, and so that is certainly not something that should be taken lightly. And I don't have a huge amount of sympathy for proposals for a no-flight zone and things like that right now, but if this thing gets as ugly as you're hypothesizing, 
then it would raise some questions about whether deeper Western involvement in the war is warranted. What happens next with the military engagement in the Ukraine? Well, the Russians have some major decisions to make in the next couple of weeks. Are they going to commit more forces to the fighting if they're not able to achieve their objectives? Are they going to level the major cities as a way of coercing capitulation? Because what they're doing right now, I don't think is working to secure the political ends that they want to secure. Putin is not going to give up. I don't think the Ukrainians want to give up either right now. And so that's why I would not be surprised if we end up in a conflict that drags on. But that said, I'm driving in the dark as well as anybody. My initial expectation is that the Russians would have done much better militarily up to now than they have. And so I certainly wouldn't claim to have a crystal ball on this. What do you make of the private firm's decision to leave Russia? This was relatively unexpected. I don't think many people predicted that you were going to see Russia isolated from the international economy and from international society as thoroughly over such a short period. And this is provoking some degree of introspection, if not Putin, that among people around him, that they may have miscalculated the cost of this whole thing. Private sector sanctions are not new. They played an important role in the end of apartheid in South Africa, for instance, when major banks stopped rolling over South African debt in the late 1980s. The Chinese have sanctioned entities that do business with Lithuania, because Lithuania opened a Taiwan representative's office in Vilnius. Has the Ukraine situation changed the Chinese calculus for invading Taiwan? I think there are a bunch of interesting lessons. The Chinese need to double down on indigenous technological development. They've probably also been shocked by the ferocity of the international response. This episode has shown the importance of talking in advance about what economic and technological sanctions you might put in place if China were to jump Taiwan. It probably indicates that you want to strengthen your forward position in the Western Pacific. It's just a big reminder that major war is not passe. I end each session on a note of optimism. Hal, what are you optimistic about? Putin has reminded us of the fragility of the international order that served us very well. And it's already eliciting extraordinary efforts to shore up that international order against countries that are trying to destabilize it. I'm actually a little bit optimistic that the West could end up in a stronger place if it uses this crisis as an opportunity to invest in a way that allows us to defend an international order that's come under strain. Hal, thank you very much. Let's move to our second speaker, Desmond Lachman. Des is an economist at AEI. And Des is going to speak about rising inflation. Des, why is inflation at 7.9%? The administration and the Federal Reserve would tell you that it's because of supply-side problems. COVID interrupted the supply chain. You weren't getting electronic chips and all the rest of that. You know, And that's true that that did curtail supply. But what they're not telling you is that their demand policies were just totally reckless. So if you start with the Biden administration, they come into office March 2021, they pass a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan. That comes on top of $3 trillion in bipartisan support. So you get an increase in government spending of $5 trillion, which is 20% of GDP. 
And the problem is that one had an output gap of something like 4 or 5% at most. So the fiscal policy is excessive. Darry Summers described that as the most irresponsible fiscal policy in the past 40 years. I would very much agree with that. But then have a Federal Reserve that they keep interest rates at zero. They buy bonds at a faster rate than Bernanke did in response to 2008. So they buy roughly $4.5 trillion of bonds in the space of 12 months. It took Bernanke six years to do that. They're letting the money supply balloon. The broad money supply the last two years has increased by something like 40%. We haven't seen anything like this you know, in 50 years. So it's no surprise that we've got this inflation. The only surprise I'd say is now we're getting hit by this Russian-Ukraine shock, sending commodity prices through the roof. So the number you saw, the 7.9%, doesn't incorporate the 70 cents a gallon increase in prices since the February 24th invasion. We're going to see inflation at eight and a half, nine percent, we're going to get inflationary expectations unanchored. The Federal Reserve, they've done two things by their reckless monetary policy. The one is they've produced inflation. But the second thing is they've produced asset price and credit market bubbles all over the show. Equities, the valuations like at a hundred year high, according to Case Shiller, you look at housing prices, even adjusted for inflation, we're above the 2006 level. Then credit spreads narrowing like crazy. So you've got a credit bubble. So that puts the Fed in a box now. You've got inflation out of control. It needs high interest rates. But high interest rates would kill these bubbles. So they've really got a very delicate balance to do. How do you explain the surge in inflation? I don't think supply chain disruption is responsible for price increases across all products, housing, autos, wages. It's everywhere. Why is the Biden administration sticking to the supply chain causality and the transitory nature of inflation? That is politically what they have to do. You know, Biden is having to pander to his progressive base, you know, so he does the expenditures and then he's got to somehow explain that the inflation has got nothing to do with him. It's either got to do with COVID or else it's got to do with Putin. The Fed is a lot less excusable. The Fed, their job is supposed to be price stability and they've made huge misjudgments. What we learned in the 70s and 80s was that monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. We've got a Fed that is so data dependent, they don't anticipate things occurring. March 19, 2021, when Biden introduces this massive package, the Fed sticks to its same monetary policy. Really, it boggles my mind how incompetent this Federal Reserve has been. There's no excuse that inflation is the result of too much demand and too little supply. What they've done is that as the supply has gone down, they seem to have been increasing the demand either by ballooning budget deficits or by the Fed having its pedal to the metal. I really don't see the logic of what they're doing. And they're talking about very gradual increases. Let's just look where interest rates are. Your interest rates at zero and inflation at seven. But the point I'd emphasize is that for them to squeeze inflation out of this economy is not going to be easy because of the 
distortions, not only in the United States asset and credit markets, but it's a global Federal Reserve, along with the ECB, along with the Bank of Japan, along with the Bank of England, all of them doing the same thing, flooding the market with liquidity. Any introductory macroeconomics textbook describes effective Keynesian economic policy when fiscal stimulus is applied countercyclically. But in the past year, the federal government spent more money ever in a procyclical action. The proposed Build Back Better bill would have added further stimulus of additional trillions. Other than Joe Manchin, every other Democratic member of the House and Senate supported the additional spending despite the Keynesian argument to cut spending. How do you explain the Democrats' abandonment of Keynesian principles? It's difficult. In the United States, there's no constituency for sound public finances. Academics, they've been pushing this idea of modern monetary theory. You know, interest rates are low. You don't have to worry about budget deficits. Apart from, say, somebody like Larry Summers, who got it right, but he was very much in the minority. But the rules of economics don't change. I agree with you that without Joe Manchin, you would have had additional fiscal pressure. It just means that the inflation really gets out of control very, very soon. What about the academic economists? Why weren't they clamoring against increased spending given the economic strength and the supply constraints? Academics got it terribly wrong in 2008. They didn't see that coming at all. So for the academics to get it wrong isn't that unusual. Many years of deflationary pressures. We've had China entering the global system, putting downward pressure on prices. We've had technological progress at a very rapid rate, putting downward pressure on prices. So up until recently, all of the central banks had trouble getting inflation back to where they wanted it. You also had an environment of unusually low interest rates. You were at the zero bound. Inflation is so low, we can take risks on the side of inflation. We really don't want to go into this deflationary trap. So that thinking was okay until you come to the pandemic. And then you get the floodgates opening in a way that we've never seen before. $5 trillion of fiscal stimulus, when the gap is 4%, you're throwing 20% at it. It makes no sense with monetary policy. What strikes me is you really don't get any mention of the money supply in any of the speeches that Powell gives. So they've really taken their eye off the ball. I've no idea what is the model that uh, they're thinking? All I can say is they've got us into a huge inflationary mess, and they've got us into a big equity, housing, credit market bubble, not just in the United States, but globally. I think we're headed for a hard landing. It's just a question of what is the timing. Milton Friedman said that inflation is always a monetary phenomena. How does that explain the low inflation since 2008 and the rising inflation now? When you look at money supply, you've got to look at different kinds of money supply. So you've got to look at very narrow money supply, what the base money that the Fed is creating, and broad money supply, what most people are holding. You know, So it's the broad money supply in Friedman's world that drives the inflation. So what happened in 2008, the Fed did print a boatload of money, 
but the banks didn't lend that money. So the banks were hoarding the money. So you didn't get the broad money supply increasing like it did this time around. Now we had banks that were in reasonable shape, you know, when COVID occurs, they get flooded with liquidity. So there's lending that goes on. So the money supply grows at a rate that we haven't seen before. So, you know, if you looked at the broad money supply in 2021, the increase is something like 25% in a single year. Generally, when you had peaks earlier, they were more of the order of 8, 9, 10%. You know, we hadn't seen 25%. So it's an entirely different order of magnitude. I'm not saying that I subscribe to Milton Friedman's view because we found in the past that those aggregates weren't that accurate in predicting exactly what is going to occur. However, when I saw a chart showing that money supply is doing something that it hasn't done in 50 years, it's really literally off the chart that there's too much money around and that's overheating and the inflation. Any thoughts on tight labor markets further pushing up inflation? You're seeing wage pressures all over the show. Wages increasing now at a pretty rapid rate, job openings at record levels. You've got too much demand and you don't have an adequate amount of labor supply. And that the danger for the Fed is that if these inflation numbers go higher, then the inflationary expectations can get unanchored and then we can get into this whole wage price story that we've seen before in the 1970s. Why was the Fed saying that inflation is transitory? They stuck to that mantra for a long while that inflation was transitory, but month after month when it proved that it was increasing, they've abandoned that position. So Powell has withdrawn the word transitory. He now realizes that he has to raise interest rates Previously, they were saying there were going to be no interest rate increases. Now they're saying they're going to be three interest rate increases. What they've done is they've stopped the purchasing of all of those bonds. All of that should have been done at least six months behind the curve. So they recognize now that they do have an inflation problem. But the reason that I don't see them moving that rapidly, first is that we're in the middle of a war. There's a lot of uncertainty. You don't want to move too quickly, do something rash and then regret it. But it seems to me that the bigger reason is that the financial markets look to me like they're beginning to unravel. So they realize that their limitations on how much they can do. If they totally remove the idea that there's a Fed put, that could be fairly traumatic in the market. So they're between a rock and a hard place. You know, they've got this inflation problem, but they've got the financial markets to worry about. My guess is that what they do is they increase interest rates, but at too slow a pace to make much of a difference to the inflation story. They just kick the can down the road. But what it means is that the landing will be harder when they eventually are forced to slam on the monetary policy brakes. Mistakes were made. Why not just admit them and raise rates quickly and sharply and get us on the right course? Why delay things and continue with too low of an interest rate? 
I would say that part of his behavior last year has to be associated with wanting renomination, knowing that raising interest rates could jeopardize his renomination. And I think that that is rather shameful, created an inflationary problem for which we're now going to pay. 40 years ago, we had high inflation and Fed Reserve Chairman Volcker raised interest rates. How is it different this time around? Well, I guess the way that I see the difference between 40 years ago is that we didn't have these asset and credit market bubbles. So the recession is likely to be deeper this time than a normal recession. But I would agree that once you've let the inflation genie out of the bottle, as we certainly have, then you're not going to get the inflation down without a period of very much slower growth. So the economy really has to slow down. It probably has to go into recession in order to bring the inflation down. There's not a free lunch that if you screwed up, there's a price you pay. There's no magic way of wishing this away. What do you think of Charles Goodhart's thesis that deflation was caused by the one-time addition of Chinese labor to the international economy and now that's over. You know, I agree with him that China was a big deflationary force. As we incorporated China and India into the global economy, that put downward pressure on prices, and that probably has run its course. Where I disagree with him is that you can get other factors to exert downward pressure on wages and prices, and that is technological progress. If we really are going towards greater robotics, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, in my lifetime, I've seen technological progress make a huge difference. And if this occurs at a faster rate, that can be your offset to the China situation. How will higher interest rates affect different sectors of our economy? Interest rates will work in a different way this time around. Instead of it necessarily slowing the housing market, slowing the order market, the channel this time around could be through the financial markets. So, you know, if my thesis is right, that a lot of these bubbles that we're seeing in the equity, housing, credit markets are premised on the idea that we're going to have zero interest rates forever. And then we see that the interest rates are actually rising meaningfully, and that deflates the bubbles. That's the way we'll get the economy slowing. How do you explain the significant negative real interest rates in G7 government debt? If you look at the ECB and the Fed, between them, they bought $10 trillion of bonds. I don't know why one would be surprised that bond rates are that low, you know, that as soon as the inflation goes, you might see uh, something different. The way I'm viewing the world is that I think the bond market has got it right, that the short end of the curve is where the interest rates should go up, the long should be down, because that seems to be my view is that this is going to lead to all sorts of financial market dislocation. You get a deep recession and then we back to the deflationary problem going forward. Short term, we're going to see inflation rise quite a lot. You know, I think that that's baked in the cake for a number of reasons. One is that this whole Ukrainian commodity price business 
That isn't in the numbers yet. That can easily add alone one and a half, two percent to the inflation rate. Another thing on the inflation side is the housing component. You've got house prices going up by 20%, rents going up by 12%. And you look at what they've got in the index, that goes up by 3 or 4%. That typically works with a long lag. So that's going to be with us for a long time. You know, If you ask me where inflation will be the next six months, we come pretty close to the 10% range. But going forward, if we do have a 2008 kind of recession, then inflation is going to be the last of our problems. Nobody's really worried about the public debt anymore. And you know, my experience has been that never ends well in the long, long run. You know, that generally governments try to inflate this away. Sounds like they're inflating it away right now. Des, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm always reminded of Herbert Hoover's famous statement where he said, Blessed are the children, they'll inherit the national debt. I don't think I'll be around to see the outcome of the real mess that my generation has made of the economies. I think you need to work on your optimism, Des. Thanks to Hal and Desmond for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our first speaker will be Roy McFarker, who is a close friend of mine. Roy worked in the Obama White House where he helped craft the Russian oligarch sanctions. I want to hear about why this time the West went all in with sanctions and what are the long-term implications of this foreign policy approach. Our second speaker will be Ruth Weiss, who is an emeritus professor of Yiddish and comparative literature at Harvard. Ruth will speak about anti-Semitism and the growing intolerance of Zionism on college campuses, the failures in Holocaust education, and why Jews need to focus on achievement and abstain from being the victim. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.